like that last song that we sang a lot. Jesus, Lord of all, all our hope is in you. All our hope is in you. I think, though, the most important word in that entire song is the word the, the rescue for sinners, the ransom from heaven. You need to be aware that Jesus is the only hope for the world. He is not one of many rescue for sinners, one of many ransoms from heaven. He is the rescue, the ransom, the only hope of the world. And so we must preach the gospel, right? I was at a conference a couple weeks ago and a man said that the open door is the only door. And the only door is an open door. We need to remember that. We need to preach the exclusivity of the gospel, that Jesus is the only way to salvation. But we need to preach it with an invitation that he is the way to salvation and that the door is open. So repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, right? All right, do you have your Bible this morning? Romans chapter 1 is where you need to go. Last week was Easter, and it was great, wasn't it? I follow this one funny guy on Twitter called the Surly Deacon. It's hilarious, and uh, only pastors follow that guy. And uh, he said this morning, he said, last week was the empty tomb. This week, the empty pew. <laughs> How sad and often true statements like that are. Last week was Easter. We celebrated the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. This week is not Easter. But as Jason said early this morning, we continue to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, right? Every week. Every week we do this. And we must not forget that is why we gather. We also, last week, not only celebrated the resurrection, we launched into a study of the book of Romans. can't tell you how excited I am about what the next several months or years hold for us here. Um, so many lives have been changed in the study of this letter. God has used this particular book of, of his Bible to change a lot of lives in some powerful ways and to set some people absolutely on fire for the kingdom of God. And it's my prayer is that that won't just be historical fact, but that will be our experience as we study, that our lives will be changed, and that men and women and boys and girls in this room will be set on fire for the kingdom, give their lives for the kingdom, for the glory of God. It's our great hope in this. Last week in verses 1 to 7, we saw Paul introduce himself to the church at Rome. I want to tell you, uh, because we didn't do a normal introduction to a study like this, I want to tell you that the church at Rome is not a church that Paul founded. It's not even a church that he had, has visited when he wrote this letter. He hadn't met these people. He doesn't know these people. And yet what you're going to see in the text today is he loves them. He cares about them deeply, and he can't wait to go get to see them. Um, but he introduced himself to them. He said, um, I'm a slave. I'm a slave of Jesus. He's my master. I do what he says. He also said, I'm an apostle who's been called and sent. We talked about the importance of that pattern in our lives as well, that we have been called in to a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. He has invited us in, but he hasn't just called us. He has sent us as well. A lot of us like to embrace the call of the Lord Jesus Christ to salvation. We enjoy the grace he has provided for us, but we're not interested in him sending us out to take it anywhere else. And yet we see in Paul's life and in so many other lives in Scripture that when Christ calls us, he sends us as well. And we are sent people as well. Not with the same kind of authority that Paul had, but we are certainly sent. And after he introduced himself to them, he, he, he gave an introduction to the gospel, which is going to be absolutely foundational for what we're going to see for the rest of the letter. The rest of this letter is all about the gospel. I was explaining to my Sunday school class this morning, uh, for those of you who are car guys, car park guys, uh, Romans is the exploded view uh, of the gospel. 
Uh, sometimes when you look at a car parts catalog, you see an alternator. And then sometimes they will blow it up and show you all the individual parts of the alternator. And it doesn't make a lot of sense. It doesn't make a lot of sense. But if you understand it, if you understand how it works, then you can understand how all those parts come together to make this one glorious alternator. We're not interested in alternators around here, though, are we? We're interested in the gospel, right? And we want to blow it up separate all these parts and study them all very closely so that we can understand it as a whole. And that's what we're going to do in Romans. And it's going to take us a long time, and I hope you'll stick with us. I hope Jesus comes back uh, before we finish uh, so that he can, he can show us, he can teach us. But until then, we will study his word. So Paul introduced the gospel. He said it is good news, right? It's good news. And this good news is the gospel of God. It's not of Paul or of Chris or of the church. It is the gospel of God. It is a gospel according to the scriptures. It's not new. It's old. All of the Old Testament points to this good news. It is a gospel about Christ. It's so important. The gospel is not about you. You're not at the center of the gospel. Christ is at the center of the gospel. His name and his glory is at the center of the gospel. It is a gospel for the nations, not just for little pockets of people, not just for the privileged or the initiated. The gospel is for the nations, all the people. We take the gospel to the ends of the earth. It is a gospel unto the obedience of faith. That little phrase is so rich, and we're going to talk about that for years to come, about what does he mean by the obedience of faith. Does he mean simply a response to the gospel that is obedience? I mean, that is faith, obedience that is faith? Or is he talking about faith that works itself out in obedience, faith that is working? Uh, yeah, he means both of those things, both sides of that coin. And I hope you got to talk about that in small group Bible study this morning. We will talk more about it later on. Unto the obedience of faith, and this is a gospel for the sake of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The whole thing, in fact, all things revolve around him. All things are from him and through him and for him. All things for his glory. And as we minister and as we preach, as we proclaim, as we sing, it's about him. When we gather in this place, it's about him. It's for him, not for you, right? Now, we enjoy great benefits of it. It's good to be here, right? It's good to hear the gospel. It's good to sing his praises. It's good to be in him. But it's for him, ultimately, that all of these things take place, and we need to remember that. This week, Paul will continue uh, to abide by the normal form of a letter in his day. Uh, when, when, when letters were written back in Paul's day, they all followed the same basic outline. There is an introduction and a salutation, which is what we saw last week, some greetings. And then usually the next part is some kind of um, thankfulness. I'm really thankful for you and some sort of desire or wish for the people that you're writing to. And so every letter, uh, whether it was a Christian letter or, or a secular letter, would follow that same form. And what Paul does always is he takes that standard form of the culture and he makes it expressly Christian. So Paul is not just going to say, oh, I'm thankful for you. He's going to say, I'm thankful to God through Jesus Christ for you. He makes it expressly Christian, and he's not just going to express some desire for them or some well wishes for them. He's going to pray for them and ask God to do something great for them. And so uh, we want to be doing that same thing. When we uh, engage people in our culture, we want to follow the standard form. We don't want to be total weirdos who can't communicate at all. We want to follow the standard form, but we want to be expressly Christian in our conversations. We want to be expressly Christian in our communication with people, right? We don't, we don't want to hide our Christianity. We don't want to just bury it under the standard forms of our culture. We want, we want to be out there. We want to be out there so that people know that we follow the Lord Jesus Christ because we want them to come with us and follow him, right? 
All right, so Romans chapter 1 today, we're going to look at verses 7, um, uh, 8 through 15. And next week, we're going to back up a little bit and, and kind of go back into what we're studying today and then charge on a little bit forward. That's why it's going to take us so long to study this letter. Um, we're going to take some steps forward and then a couple steps back and then some more steps forward. It's so rich and so good. In fact, um, I studied all week in, in preparation for verses 8 to 15 and then sat down to actually write notes and got to verse 8 and thought, uh, I'm not going to be able to get through verse 8 in, in an hour with, with these people today. Um, so we're going to be here for four hours today. <laughs> Romans chapter 1, verse 8 says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you. Always in my prayers, making requests, if perhaps now at last by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far, so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So, for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Let's pray together. God, we, we come before you today, and we want to be faithful students of your word. We want to approach it carefully, we want to study it closely, we want to engage our minds. But we know that apart from you speaking, apart from you turning the lights on, apart from you giving understanding, apart from you revealing yourself, it's futile, it's empty. So we invite you to speak. So we want to hear from you you to speak with power and authority into our lives. We want you to give us understanding, and we want you to teach us how to respond, how to obey your word today. God, we don't, we don't want to go at this alone, so we invite you to speak. We invite the Holy Spirit to remind us of things we've already been taught. We invite the Holy Spirit to light up the text. We invite the Holy Spirit to open our eyes and our hearts to receive the message and our lives to obey it. God, do a work in this place that only you can do. And do it for your own glory. Now, not, not for our sake primarily, but for your own glory. For the sake of your name, do this thing. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, uh, there are about five parts of this text today. Five uh, things that are going on with Paul as he's introducing this letter to the, to the Roman church. First one is that he's thankful for them. And we see that in verse 8. Paul is thankful for the church at Rome. Look what he says in verse 8. He starts out with the word first. And, and a lot of times when we see that word, we think uh, that sometime later there will come second. Uh, usually when we see that word, our minds start to think of the clock, uh, of a timeline, that first is this, second is this, and after that will come the third. But that's not what's going on here. The first that he's saying, the reason why he says the word first here, is he's talking about priority. It's not about first of many things to come. It is first in priority, first in importance. Because if you notice when you read through the text, there's no second. He never gets to point two. He just says, this is really important. I want you to know, I want you to know and listen up very closely. I'm thankful for you. 
I am thankful for you. Paul says in this text, he says first, I thank my God. I thank my God. That is huge and teaches us something about the intimate and personal nature of Paul's relationship with God. You see, God is not just the God of our fathers. He's not just the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's not just the God of Peter and Paul and John. It's my God. It's my God. Intimate and personal is this relationship that I have with him through the Lord Jesus Christ. And I hope you can say that as well. I hope you can't just approach God as, as if he is just the God. Or if he's the God of your grandmother. Or the God of your father. Or the God of this church. I hope that you know him as your God. In a personal and intimate way, Paul approaches God with intimacy, personality, close relationship. He says, I think my God. And then the next thing he says is absolutely huge. He says, I think my God through Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ. And this is a theme that you're going to see all throughout Romans, that Jesus is the one mediator between God and man. We approach God through Jesus Christ. We approach the Father through the Son. Jesus says it this way in John chapter 14, right? Uh, he tells, tells him, I'm going away, and when I go away, I'll come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. You remember this whole scene? Thomas says, uh, that's what Thomas always says, right? Uh, we don't know where you're going. How can we possibly know the way to get there? And what's Jesus say? I am the way, and the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Catch that? Jesus is the one mediator between God and man. And he is that mediator by virtue of his person and work. He is the one that can stand between God and us and bring us together because of who he is and what he has done. You see, there's a great separation. There's a great separation between God and man because of sin, right? God is completely holy and he's completely just. And man is completely sinful, and therefore God and man are separated. There's a, there's a large chasm fixed between the two, biblical language says. And it's hopeless, because there's no way, there's no way that man can work himself up to God. No way that we can get ourselves together and make ourselves right with God. So what did God do? Came to us. Came to us. Jesus, fully God and fully man, is able to bridge that gap, and he takes our sin upon himself, and he suffers the judgment of God against our sin. We call that propitiation. He satisfies the wrath of God for our sins, and not only does he suffer for us, not only does he die as our substitute, he rises again, right? Rises again victorious over sin and death and hell. And because of who he is and what he has done in his death, burial, and resurrection, he can bring us together with God. He can reconcile us to God. That God can be just and the justifier of the ungodly because of Jesus Christ. All right, so, so Jesus is the mediator. So when we go to the Father, we can only go to him through Jesus. A lot of people are trying to get to God a lot of other ways. A lot of people think there's a man on the earth who's the mediator between God and man. A priest or a pope. No, Jesus is the high priest. Jesus is the great high priest. Jesus is the mediator between God and man. Amen. This is the Protestant church, right? We're in, I'm in the right place? The church is not a mediator between God and man. Jesus is the mediator between God and man. The preacher is not the mediator between God and man. Jesus is the mediator between God and man. He's the only one, and you'll look at that more next week in small group Bible study. Jesus is the mediator. And you'll see that in Romans. Paul says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ. See how expressly Christian this is? He's not just, oh, I thank goodness for you. 
he's so thankful for you guys in Rome? No, he says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. And that blows my mind too. He says, I'm thankful for all of you. He hasn't met any of them, it seems. Maybe a few that he's met as he's traveled around. He doesn't know these people, but he is thankful to God through Jesus Christ for all of them. And I love that. I love his heart. Loving people he has, he has never met. And then it says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. He can be thankful for them because the word about their faith was spreading. People were talking about their faith. I guess that leads me to first bit of application is, do people talk about our faith? People talk about my faith? Is word about your faith spreading? To the whole world, he says. And, and, and I agree with, with scholars that would say what he means by the whole world there is the whole known world. He's not talking about the entire planet. He's talking about Rome, basically. But, but still, the point's the same. Is anybody talking about your faith? And if they were, how do they talk about your faith? That's the question that leads me to next. How, what were they saying about the faith of the people in Rome? Were they talking about this invisible, internal thing that they've got going on? This invisible, internal trust in the Lord Jesus Christ where they are resting their whole weight on him and trusting his person and his work for their salvation? Were people talking about that? How, how do you even talk about that? How do you even talk about How would, the, how would anyone say, oh yeah, I, I, I want to talk about the, the extreme trust in the Lord Jesus Christ that the people at First Baptist in Harrisburg have? Is that, is that the way they were talking about their faith, or were they talking about the evidences of their faith, the demonstrations of their faith? Were people saying that the folks in Rome who trust Jesus suffer well? I know about these. I know, I know about this group of people in Rome. Have you heard about these people in Rome when they are persecuted and drug into the Colosseum? They just go for it. They, they don't deny what they believe. They don't back away. They go with great boldness straight to their death for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. They talk about them suffering well. Were they talking about how they loved each other? Were they saying, man, there's this weird group of people in Rome who love each other, like really love each other. They're not related. They don't, they don't have any cultural obligation to each other, but they love each other and they take care of each other and they provide for each other. Maybe were they saying they preach the gospel all the time. There's this group of people in Rome that won't stop talking about Jesus. Just every time you meet one of them, they're talking about him. They, they, they tell everybody about him. Maybe that's what they were saying about their faith. Maybe they were talking about how they served. There's this group of people in Rome, and they're constantly serving the people around them, even people they don't like. They'll take care of them, and they'll help them, and they'll serve them. They love, the, they love Rome. They shouldn't. They shouldn't love Rome, but they do. They love Rome. They love their city. Or maybe they were talking about how they know the word, how they've got this book, and they study it, and they know it, and their lives are informed by it. I want, you get my point? I don't think what Paul was hearing all around the world about the church in Rome was something that was invisible. I think it was something that was very visible that was a product of something that was invisible. And so he says, I, I hear about your faith. I hear about your faith because people are talking about the things that you're doing that are flowing from your faith. I hear people talking about the obedience of faith in your life. And everyone's talking about it. Oh, man. That that would be the conversation about First Baptist in Harrisburg they would be talking about our faith. I hear people talk about churches a lot. And most of the time, it's not about their faith. Most of the time, what is talked about in the world about the church is their problems, their infighting, their jealousy, their dysfunction. It shouldn't be that way, guys. 
supposed to be talking about our faith and the evidences of our faith in our lives. That's what the world was hearing about from the church at Rome. He says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. I love, I love that he is thankful to God for all of this. He doesn't say, congratulations, church at Rome. Way to go, church at Rome. Thank you, church at Rome, for your faith. He says, God, thank you for their faith. I thank God for your faith because it's not something you have conjured up. It's not something you have created. It's not something you have done. It's something that has been given to you. And so we praise the giver of that gift rather than the one who's received it, right? And I think this informs how we interact with people who make professions of faith. I think this should. That's awkward, isn't it? Someone receives the great gift of salvation and we come by and we say, man, we're so proud of you. So proud of you. What? Do you say that at Christmas time when someone opens a gift? I'm so proud of you for opening that gift. No, you say, man, I think whoever gave you for that, that gift, I thank them for that gift. This is amazing. Who, who gave this gift to you? I want to meet him. I want to know him. I want to I get to know this person. Maybe that should inform the way we talk to this guy. He usually stands right here, right? We come by. I'm so proud of you. I'm so happy. All those things. Maybe we should say, oh, I'm so thankful to God for this. I'm so thankful to God for you, for your new faith. He's done a great work in you, and we praise him, right? Otherwise, otherwise it can begin to revolve around this guy. This guy and what, what's happened with him. No, it's not about him. It's about him, right? It's about the Lord, not about any man. So Paul has a good perspective on the kingdom, and I want to talk about that. As he is thankful for them, thankful for these people he doesn't know, thankful for this church he has not planted, we need to recognize that there's work going on all around us. Paul wasn't involved in the work at Rome, but he's thankful for it. He could have been jealous. He could have been skeptical. He could have raised all kinds of doubts and questions because he wasn't involved. He doesn't. He just rejoices over it. He says, I'm so glad. I'm so glad about the work that's going on there. And we need to have that kind of mentality in our town and in the world. Just because we're not involved in it, just because it's not a ministry of First Baptist Church, doesn't mean it's, it's not glorious and wonderful doesn't mean we shouldn't be thankful for it. So when we hear about things going on in other churches, in other countries, in other towns, we need to say, God, thank you for that. That's so good. Thank you for that gift you've given. And we need to praise him for it. Paul had a kingdom perspective, not just his own ministry perspective. He had a kingdom perspective, and we need to follow him in that. So Paul was thankful for them. In verses 9 and 10, we learned that he was also praying for them. Look what he says in verse 9. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his son. That's so instructive, and I love it. You get to learn a little bit about Paul's heart in the ministry. It's not just his job. It's not just his obligation, as he will say later on. It's his heart's desire. It's his passion. He seems to be totally consumed by this. He says, I serve God not just with my mouth. I serve him not just with my body. I serve him in my spirit. This is fire in the bones kind of stuff. He's not just coldly going through the motions of preaching the gospel in Rome or preaching the gospel in Spain or preaching the gospel in Ephesus. He's totally consumed by all of this, right? You can't stop this guy. In fact, one, one commentator said it this way. The preaching of the gospel is in his blood. He cannot refrain from it. He's never off duty but must consistently be at it, discharging a little more of that obligation which he owes to the whole of, human, of the human family, an obligation which he will never fully discharge so long as he lives. I love that. He never quits. He never shuts off. There is no off switch with the Apostle Paul. He serves, he serves with his spirit, in his spirit. Notice also he says, I make mention of you in my prayers. Why would Paul pray about the church at Rome. He doesn't even know these people. Why would he pray for them? Why would he always be mentioning them in his prayers? Well, because they're family, right? If we learned anything, if we learned anything in Ephesians, we learned that God brings us together 
in the gospel and makes us into a body and makes us into a family. And those are brothers and sisters of his. Even though he doesn't know them, he connected with them. And so he prays for them. He also prays for them because Rome is the most strategic place in the world at that time. He's going to pray for the church at Rome because it's the most strategic church in the world. Because more people travel in and out of Rome. And Rome has more influence on the entire world than any other place. And so he prays for the church at Rome because he cares about the kingdom. He cares about the progress of the kingdom, and he knows that's a strategic place. And we need to be that way. We need to be that way here. I will let you in on something. Harrisburg, globally, not hugely strategic. Did you know that? Like the whole world doesn't talk about Harrisburg. In fact, when you travel someplace else and you say, I'm from Harrisburg, everybody says, oh, yeah, I know right where that is. No. No, you have to make reference to some other place, right? Well, St. Louis and Paducah and, yeah, kind of around, around there. That's what we have to do, right? Now, I, I will say this. I think Harrisburg is extremely strategic in southeastern Illinois. I think as far as this region of Illinois goes, Harrisburg is very strategic. But globally, not so strategic. But there are some places where, where there are churches that are extremely strategic, major cities where there are vibrant, healthy churches. We need to be praying for those churches. Because people are coming from all over the world into those places to hear the gospel and then they go back. University campuses, we need to be praying for churches near university campuses because kids from all over the world are coming there and hearing the gospel and they go back out. That's one of the reasons why Paul is praying for them is it's a strategic place. In fact, one of the reasons why he wants to go is not just to have some time with Rome. He doesn't get to this until the very end of the letter, which is smart, right? But, but he really wants to go to Rome, not to just go to Rome. He wants to go to Rome to have a headquarters and a launching pad to go to Spain. He wants to go to Rome so that he can go further than Rome. It's strategic, and so he prays for them. He prays for them because he loves them. They're his family. They are Christ's body, and it's a strategic place. Look what he says in verse, um, where are we at, 10. Always in my prayers making requests, if perhaps now, at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. We'll talk more about his travel plans in just a minute, but here I want to stress the deference to God's will. He says, here, at last, at last, if it's God's will, I might get to come to you. He wants to go there, right? He, he, wants, he wants to see them. He wants to be mutually encouraged by them. He wants to visit them. He wants all of these things, but he knows that if God's not in it, it doesn't matter what he wants. And so far, God has delayed him from going there. And we need to have that mentality where we are constantly deferring to God's will. It's not what I want, it's what you want. I want to go to Rome, but if you don't want me in Rome, I don't want to go to Rome. Does that make sense? Paul constantly deferring to God's will, and we must as well. And then he says, then he says in verse 10, if perhaps now at last by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. At last by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. I want to give you a note about Paul's prayer life. He was a praying guy. Prayer was a priority in his life. His prayer life was regular and it was disciplined. It was wide-ranging. He was praying for people he knew by name. He was praying for brothers and sisters in the church that he'd never even met. It was wide-ranging. And Paul was praying about the most important things. And we need to be praying about the most important things. So often, our prayer life is consumed by minutia and details. And I believe God cares about those things. I believe God cares about your hangnail. God cares about your great aunt's surgery that's coming up. I believe he cares about those things. But if that's all you're ever praying about, if that's all you're ever coming to him with, then 
missing the bigger picture. Our prayer life should be about the kingdom, about the growth of the church, about the reaching of the lost and the discipling of, of converts. Paul was praying about the most important things. Don't stop praying about your hangman. Start praying about the lost world around you. Start praying for the church. Add that as the most important thing on your list. So Paul was thankful for them. Paul was praying for them. And Paul loved them. In verse 11 and 12, he loved them. Look what he says. For I long to see you. I long. That's like love letter language, isn't it? He doesn't even know these people. I long to see you. He can't wait to get there. He is so ready. Why does he love them so? Why does he want to be there with them? Because they share the same faith. They share the same faith. He says, I long, I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you. That's a little bit confusing. It's a little bit confusing because Paul teaches us a lot about spiritual gifts. In other letters, in this letter, he teaches us about spiritual gifts, about, about prophecy, about teaching, about mercy, about all these kind of spiritual gifts. But every time he talks about those gifts, he's very specific. He's very specific, and he always says that those gifts come from God, that God is the one who distributes those gifts. He's the one who rules over this gift. So here, he's using very vague language. He says, I wish to impart to you some spiritual gift. And so I don't think what he's meaning there is spiritual gift the way we usually think about it. Some specific mercy or hospitality or something like that, that he's going to give that to the church. I think he's being very intentionally vague here. And he says, I just want to be of some benefit to you. I want to impart some spiritual gift. Maybe it's some kind of teaching. Maybe it's some fellowship. Maybe it's some just living together in example. We don't know what it is, but he's being intentionally vague. What we do know is the purpose of the gift that he wants to bring to them. Some spiritual gift that he says that he says will establish them so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. He wants them to be established. He wants them to stand firm. He wants them to grow. And I love this about Paul's heart for ministry. A lot of people would label Paul as an evangelist or a missionary. An evangelist or a missionary. And a lot of times when we think about those two groups of people, we think about folks who are only concerned with initial conversion who show up into a town and they preach the gospel and a lot of people come to faith in Jesus and then they walk away and they write down in their bulletin, whoa, 517 people got saved in Ephesus and 647 got saved in Philippi and they just walk away, only concerned about initial conversion. Not Paul. That's not the way Paul operated. He was not just concerned about conversion. He was concerned about discipleship. And we see that as evident. We see it evidenced in Ephesus. He stayed in Ephesus for a long time. Why? To win more converts? Surely that was happening. But to disciple those new believers. To teach them what it looks like to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? Paul is not just concerned about planting churches. He plants all kinds of churches. He goes to new places and preaches the gospel for the first time. And a church is born. And he doesn't just walk away. He stays there and he cultivates that church and helps it grow. And even when he does move on to a new, new place, what's he do? He travels back through and checks on them. And when he can't travel back through and checks on them, he writes a letter. Most of the New Testament is the result of this, right? He is not just concerned with the planting of new churches. He's concerned about the health of those churches. Paul, Paul has a well-rounded view of ministry. And we need that well-rounded view of ministry. Southern Baptist Convention for a long time was only concerned about initial conversion. We, we love to brag about how many people we disciple. I mean, how many people we baptized. We love to brag about how many people came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'd host big events, and we'd get them to sign a card, and we'd get them to be baptized, and we'd never hear from them again. 
far too long we were only concerned about that one part of ministry to the absolute neglect of the other parts, to the absolute neglect of the 60, 70 years that a person might live between their conversion and when they actually meet the Lord Jesus face to face. We just left them on their own for that period of time. You can't do that. Paul was concerned about both of these things, and I want us as a church to be concerned about both of these things. And my prayer is that this study of this letter will be toward both of those things. That as we study Romans, my prayer is that people will be converted, that lives will be changed, that people will come to faith in Jesus Christ and be saved, right? Will you join me in that prayer? My prayer is also that as we study this letter, believers, disciples will be matured, will be encouraged, will be growing as we study this letter. That disciples will grow. Does that make sense? My, my desire is that churches will be planted and that this church will be healthier as a result of this study. That was Paul's desire in ministry. It was not one-sided. It was a biblical balance where both are elevated, not one elevated to the neglect of the other. You with me? This is going to come up again in a minute, I promise. Okay? So he wants them to be established, and then he says this. That is, this is verse 12. That is that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine, that they would be encouraged together. I love this. Paul says, I don't just want to come to you to help you. I don't want to just show up at Rome as the, the man who's in charge, who knows it all, and give you something. He says, I want to come to Rome to spend time with you and be encouraged by you. Can you imagine getting that letter from Paul? Hey, Chris, it's Paul. I'm coming to town in a couple weeks, and I can't wait to spend some time with you to be encouraged by you. Really? Really? You want to be encouraged by me, Paul. That's incredible, right? But that's exactly what he says to them. He says, when I come, don't think that this relationship is one-sided. Ministry is always a two-way street. Ministry is absolutely always a two-way street. We want, we want to help you. Your pastors here want to help you, but we want to be encouraged by you as well. We want to experience this two-way street. One commentator said it this way. He said, let me see if I can find this in my notes. Probably not. Oh, Paul knew nothing would strengthen an older believer's faith like the vibrant faith of a new believer. And nothing was better for a new believer than time with a mature saint. Paul knew that... that after all he's been through, it's good to be around some people who are brand new in the faith and charged up and excited, right? Remember what that was like? When you couldn't be stopped? You didn't, you didn't know any better than just to tell everybody about Jesus? You remember that? It's good for us who've been around for a while to get back with those folks and catch a little bit of that again. And it's good for those folks to be around some of us who have been in the faith for a while, who have grown and matured. It's good for us to influence them and them to influence us. It's good to be together, right? So Paul says we want to be mutually encouraged as we go through this life together. So Paul um, thanks God for them. Paul prays for them. Paul loves them. Verse 13 and 15, Paul says, I'm eager to see you. Look at verse 13. It says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers. That's a classic phrase that's going to come up over and over again as you study Paul's letters. I don't want you to be unaware. I don't want you to be ignorant, brothers. Usually something important is coming after that. It's kind of like in the Gospel of John when Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, Truly, truly, I say to you, listen up. When Paul says, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, something big is coming. He says, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often planned to come to you and have been prevented so far. He said, I don't want you to think I don't love you. 
I don't want you to think that I think you're second-class citizens way out there at Rome. I don't want you to think as I'm traveling around the world, round and around and around the known world, that I don't care about you because I haven't been to see you yet. He says, I want you to know I've wanted to come see you, and I've made plans several times, but I've been prevented. And he doesn't give us any details of what prevented him. You can read about some of those things in other places. I'm not sure exactly what prevented him, but up to this point, he's been prevented. But it's not because he didn't want to. And he wants him to know that. He says, I want you to know I love you and I've wanted to come see you, but I've been prevented so far. And look what he says his desire is when he does come to see them. He says, I've wanted to come to you so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. He says, I want, I want to come see you so that I can obtain the same kind of fruit as other places I've been. What kind of fruit has he obtained in other places? Well, new converts... New convert. He goes to a place and he preaches the gospel and people are converted. That's some of the fruit that he obtains when he goes to a place. What else? Maturing believers, right? He says, I want to experience the same thing in Rome that I've experienced other places. Sure, new converts, but also the fruit of maturing disciples. He says, I want to experience there what I've experienced in other places. Why? For the glory of God, ultimately. He says, I've longed to come and see you. I've tried even so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. And then look at verse 15. I love verse 15. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. I am eager to preach the gospel, ready to preach the gospel. One preacher described it this way. He said, godly servants are like racehorses in the gate. It's good, right? How's, how's a racehorse go to the gate? That's coming up this weekend, next weekend, right? Kentucky Derby, those racehorses just kind of saunter into the gate. Yeah, yeah, what's going on? No, I've watched that whole process a couple times. Some of them, they can't hardly get in the gate because they're so charged up and ready to go, right? They're bouncing around, jumping around to the point of hurting themselves inside the gate, right? That's the way a godly servant should be. I'm ready to go. You can't hold me back. Or a sprinter in the blocks. Have you ever watched Usain Bolt before he gets in the, in the blocks to sprint the 100 meters? That guy's crazy. He's absolutely out of control. And he is ready, ready for that gun to go off so that he can, he can preach. Man, that's the way we should be. And we're not. We're not evidenced by, by us having to sometimes drag you to the gate, not because you're so charged up about it, but because you don't want to. And we're trying to drag you in. Man, we should be trying to hold you back. That's the way it should go. Paul was ready. He was eager to preach the gospel. And then he says this, I'm eager, eager to pre preach the gospel in Rome. Why in Rome? They're already saints. He's writing this letter to saints. Why is he eager to preach the gospel to the saints? Do Christians need the gospel? always need the gospel. We all always need the gospel. So I told you this is going to be the exploded view of the gospel that we're going to look at for several weeks. Don't check out if you're a believer. Don't check out. This is for you so that you may be encouraged, so that you may be remembering, so that you may worship, so that you may stand firm in the gospel. Don't check out, Christians. We're going to talk about the gospel for years, and it's good for you, and it's good for the lost guy that you bring with you. Everybody, everybody needs the gospel all the time. So Paul was eager to visit them. And then the last thing I'll hit on briefly is that Paul was in debt to them. This is verse 14. We'll talk about it more next week. He says, I'm under obligation. I'm under obligation both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Obligation? That doesn't sound like much fun. I preach the gospel because I'm obligated. I'm under obligation to you to come to you. We hear that word and we think it's a bad word. In the church, we talk about obligation or expectation, and people immediately recoil. I don't like, I don't like that kind of talk. Paul's glad to, to take that kind of talk. He says at one point, woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. 
Lecrae interpreted that this way. Lord, kill me if I don't preach the gospel. He was obligated to preach the gospel, but that didn't remove it from his heart, right? Here's my example, and then we'll move on. Fellas, are you obligated to your wife on your anniversary to do something special? Good. Yeah, you're absolutely obligated. Obligated to do it. So when you come home on your anniversary, do you walk in? I got you flowers. I'm going to take you to dinner because I'm obligated to. I don't, I don't want to, but I'm obligated, and so we're going. We're going. Let's go. Does that honor your wife? No, and that's not even the way it works, right? You're like, it's, it's our anniversary. We've been, we've been married for X number of years. This is incredible. I got you a gift. I got you a gift, and I want you to have it, and, and I've made reservations because I want to spend time with you because there's nothing I desire more than to be with you. It's not just an obligation. You better, you better meet that obligation, right? But it's so much more than an obligation. It is the joy of our hearts, and we'll talk about that more next week. Fair enough? Okay, so four applications today. Number one, thank God for each other. When we look around this room, we should be thankful for each other. And we should be thankful to God through the Lord Jesus Christ for the people in this room and the people that are not in this room. Thank God for each other. Number two, pray for each other. Paul was praying for the people in the church. Pray for each other. Pray for the deep things for each other. Pray for our young people, some of whom are struggling with a call to ministry. Some, some, some are ready to, to leave it all and go to the nations. Pray for them. Pray for our kids that are getting ready to graduate and transition into college. Pray for them. It's not easy. we got a lot, a lot of folks around here to pray for. Pray for each other. Third application is love each other. Really love each other. Care about each other. Look forward to this time. Get together and see some of these faces. It's good, right? I long to see you. I long to be with you. It's a long time between Sunday and Wednesday. It's an even longer time between Sunday and Sunday. We should long to be together and love each other. And the last application is most important. We all, we all always need the gospel. We all always need the gospel. The gospel wins converts. Paul says it one place, and I want to say this to you. I want our preaching of the gospel to win people to Christ. Paul says he's an ambassador for Christ on behalf of God. As though God were begging you, be reconciled to God. I beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. I want nothing more for lost people in this room than to repent of their sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's what we hope is going to happen. It's what we're praying is going to happen as we study this letter. That lost people are going to be saved. That dead people are going to be raised from the dead. It's what we want to see. We want to see that and so I beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We also want to see believers mature. We want to see believers grow in the preaching of the gospel. That we would come to appreciate and cherish the gospel more and more. Because I believe it's, the more we appreciate it, the more we understand it, the more we cherish it, the more likely we are to preach it. Some of us have no desire to preach the gospel because we don't understand it. Some of us have no desire to preach the gospel because we don't truly appreciate it. We don't realize where we were and where he's brought us to. So we don't preach the gospel. So we want to grow in our understanding and our appreciation of the gospel for the sake of the preaching. That's what we want to see happen in this place. Let's stand together and pray. God, thank you for our time together. Thank you for this church. Thank you for these people whose lives have been changed by your grace. Help us to love each other more. Help us desire to be together. Help us to desire to be together more. 
And God, we're thankful today for the gospel. It's good news. It's good news that wins converts, that raises the dead, that changes lives. God, would you do that today in this place? Would you get a hold of someone's heart and change them forever? Show them their sin. Show them your sacrifice for them. Give them repentance from sin, faith to believe. God, we thank you for the gospel because it grows disciples. Teach us who are in the faith to appreciate the gospel, to understand it more, so that we will preach it with more boldness. God, we invite you to have your way with us as we respond to your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.